Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Victor Max Valentine. And I'm Bria Barthel, delighted to welcome Victor as a co-host. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley's report on the New York Renews Climate State of the State press conference. Then I bring a report from the January 6th rally at the New York State Capitol to mark the third anniversary of the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Later on, Hugh, jo- Ooh, Hugh Johnson joins us to discuss recent weather and a forecast for the week ahead. As you probably expect, snow gets mentioned. After that, Moses Nagel brings us excerpts from the public comment period after the Albany Common Council voted on their resolution for a ceasefire in Gaza. Finally, we end with an archive interview with Young Futures. Sarah Abraham asked about how this organization provides therapeutic help for kids. But first, here are some headlines. Transgender, gender nonconforming, and non-binary people face pervasive employment discrimination across New York. A new study by the State Department of Labor found such individuals face higher unemployment rates and lower pay, as well as a fear for safety in the workforce. For the third year in a row, New York led the nation in population loss, with 101,000 residents departing. Its population, however, remains the fourth largest among the states. Genesee County is the first in the state to use artificial intelligence programs to fill a staff vacancy with a high number of openings among the government workforce. This is expected to become more commonplace. Unions will likely push for expanded worker protections in the face of generative AI this year. Channel 6 and other sources report that Albany County Executive Dan McCoy has expanded his executive order on how the county can house asylum seekers. The expansion now aligns closer to New York City's order to limit where and when buses can drop off migrants. Companies busing migrants must give a 72-hour notice of arrival, including information on the passengers and the bus's locations. Governor Hocho will seek to crack down on the increasing problem of shoplifting. Merchants are calling for stiffer penalties against serial offenders. Lawmakers failed to pass such a bill last year, and Hocho vetoed a bill that would have set up a task force to study the issue. The Gazette reports that Manita Sangve, a Democrat who was recently sworn in for her second term as Saratoga Springs Finance Commissioner, will challenge incumbent James Tedesco for the state's 44th Senate District. The district represents all of Saratoga County, the city of Schenectady, and the town of Niskayuna. Tedesco, a basketball star at Union College, has held various elected offices since 1977. On a final note, Russell Sage College in Troy is working on an agreement to make it easier for students to transfer from the soon-to-close College of St. Rose in Albany. And that's it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. 
To learn how you can contribute your time, talents, or financial support, see the Donate button at mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call us at 518-272-2390. And now to our first segment. On Monday, January 8th, there was a virtual climate state of the state press conference. There were discussions on climate justice priorities for 2024, the People's Climate Justice Budget, and Climate Jobs and Justice Package. Mark Dunley reports. New York Renews is a coalition of over 370 environmental justice, faith, labor, and community groups, and was a lead group in enacting the CLCPA, the state's new climate law. They held a virtual Climate State of the State press conference on Monday, January 8th, to discuss their climate justice priorities for 2024, the People's Climate Justice Budget, and Climate Jobs and Justice Package. Key themes include making climate polluters pay to clean up the damages they have caused, an immediate $1 billion investment in shovel-ready climate projects, and the need for faster action from the state. Key bills included the New York Heat and Climate Superfunds Act, in part one of our two-part coverage, we hear from Catherine Nadow of Caskill Mountain Keeper, Assembly Members Pat Fahey and Jeff Jenowitz, and State Senator Liz Kruger. My name is Catherine Nadow, and I'm the Deputy Director for Catskill Mountain Keeper. I'm also a Steering Committee member over at New York Renews. So we're here together because over the past year, the climate crisis has only intensified. We are seeing example after example of human suffering as a result of a quickly warming planet. Last winter, nearly 50 people died in Western New York, most of them in Buffalo, after a historic blizzard. The state was blanketed in toxic wildfire smoke several times this summer, leading to skyrocketing increases in hospital visits for asthma and other chronic conditions. We saw record-breaking heat throughout the summer. And in September, we saw New York City hit with a month's worth of rain in only three hours. It flooded basements, schools, subways, and cars. And while New Yorkers are busy dealing with the incredibly expensive, immediate, life-changing, and at times fatal impacts from the climate crisis, massive corporations are pulling in record profits from deadly fossil fuels. They're profiting from New Yorkers' suffering. And that's where our coalition comes in. New York Renews is made up of frontline communities, and we have a vision. A climate-stable world with clean air and green jobs. And all of this is in reach, and it's common sense. So this year, looking at the legislative session, our communities came together and we put together a list of the projects that we know we can get committed and off the ground in 2024 with a billion dollar investment. And we're calling this the People's Climate Justice Budget. This billion dollar investment, it would be a down payment on the 10 to $15 billion a year that NYSERDA has already identified New York will have to spend every year to address the climate crisis at scale. We know state bureaucracy being what it is, it's difficult to go from moderate spending to a $10 billion spend each year. And so that's why we need to start this year by building up and scaling up our systems and our programs to invest in our communities, especially the communities that need it most. So this money would be invested in making energy bills more affordable, especially for low-income and moderate-income New Yorkers, updating our energy grid, shoring up our coastal regions, making our homes safer, and improving the roads and public transportation that are vulnerable to rising seas and worsening storms. And with this billion dollars, our communities could start to see the benefits this year, concretely, in their homes and in their communities. And so that's why we're calling on Governor Hochul to pass the People's Climate Justice in her executive budget and 
to support the whole climate jobs and justice package. We'll send it over to the assembly now with assembly member Pat Fahey. The, the bill that I do carry with Senator Kruger, and that is the, the HEAT Act. Here in the assembly, we know we have a lot of work to do, but of course, the uh, momentum and uh, the the nightmarish climate uh, that we look at is is only getting worse, uh, as uh, this as Senator Harcum just described. Uh, we have seen these extreme weather patterns everywhere uh, throughout the country, let alone throughout New York State. We know just in the last decade or so, it has cost the state five hundred billion in in again in climate related damages. It's not sustainable. This is just not sustainable. I am so proud that we have 75 co-sponsors now in the assembly uh, of the HEAT Act. <clears throat> and of course, it's already passed the Senate, as we could say, on a few hundred bills. So we know we've got our work to do. Um, but we also know the importance of this since one third of our greenhouse gas emissions are coming from our building stock. We'll work again. Uh, the budget, uh, well, the state of the state is tomorrow. Budget launches in a week or so ago, a week or so from now, and um, the the hundred foot rule, uh, saving New Yorkers at least a couple of hundred million, we believe, um, and and breaking this this connection, if you will, of where the PSC is is indirectly prom well directly promoting gas systems expansions because of the way the law has been written decades ago. So we've got to break that connection. We've got to give the PSC or the Public Service Commission the authority to start the planning as well as to help uh, address low and moderate income customers who we don't want bearing an undue cost as we move away from fossil fuels. And again, this is not just New York. The UN yet again has come out and said, we are moving past this very critical threshold of 1.5% um, in global temperatures changes within this next decade. So the time is very much now. Thank you so much, Assembly members. Wait to start these investments and start saving New Yorkers the more expensive it gets every single day. So with that, we're going to turn it over now to Assemblymember Dinowitz, the lead sponsor in the Assembly on the Climate Superfund Bill, another of the Climate Jobs and Justice Package. I have four grandsons, age eight, eight, six, and five. We call we refer to this as climate change. To them, it's climate. This is what they've lived with all of their lives now. Think about that. It's going to be worse and worse as time goes on for them. But this is what's been going on for their entire lives. So we have to take action. There are a number of bills in this package which will have a significant impact in starting to do the job that we have to do, counteract climate change and to deal with its impact. The bill that I sponsor with Senator Kruger is, is the Climate Change Superfund Act, and this legislation will raise at least $75 billion, $3 billion a year over a period of 25 years, which sounds like a lot of money. Actually, it's not nearly uh, as much as we need, but it, it'll start to make a dent. And it'll do it not by raising taxes, not by costing average people more money, but uh, by essentially assessing uh, the fossil fuel companies that have caused the most damage. And that's something we need to do 
th this bill, which we hope the governor will put into uh, the budget, makes so much sense on every possible level. And and the the I guess the bottom line is what we keep saying: if you make a mess, as our mothers told us, clean it up. And we know who made the mess: the oil companies, by and large, made much of this mess. And with their record profits, they could afford to kick in a little bit to deal with this. So I think this year we need to be bold. We need to be innovative. We have to deal with this now. And I urge Governor Hochul to put this and other pieces of this package into uh, the executive budget, which is going to be announced shortly. And we're going to turn now to a great champion in the Senate, Senator Liz Krueger, who's sponsoring a couple of the climate jobs and justice bills uh, and is always a climate champion. So turn it over to Senator Liz. Um, there really is a growing number of legislators in both houses who understand these complicated issues and are committed to getting things done. So yes, I'm very proud to be working on the New York Heat Act with Pat Fahey, who already talked a little bit about it. It's a win-win. We can get this done. It saves money for ratepayers and it decreases a waste of investment in a form of energy that we've already said we are outlawing the use of by X year. So we should not be investing more money in our gas pipe structure. And so that's what the New York Heat Act does. It stops a ridiculous law that's still on the books that anytime you build anything, you have to add gas infrastructure. Why? We're not going to be using gas. And we're spending hundreds of million dollars a year on it that are that could be in the ratepayers' pockets. So I'm committed to getting this done in both houses this year. And then I've got the climate change bill, um, excuse me, the Superfund climate change bill that Jeff Dinowitz already explained so well. And again, it would bring in money from the exact companies who are causing a huge percentage of the damage if they don't pay a part of it we pay all of it so the guys who did the damage should be picking up at least part of the tab um i unfortunately lost a fight for a veto uh, i got the veto from the governor on my deforestation bill this has been mark dunley for the hudson mohawk magazine thanks to mark for this first part of his report to hear the second part visit our website at mediasanctuary.org January 6th marks the third anniversary of the insurrection, some might say, attempted coup. At the U.S. Capitol, my co-host Bria talked with a few of the folks participating in a rally at the New York Capitol in Albany. So this is for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Can you tell, tell me your name and why you're here at the rally on January 6th? Uh, my name is Greg Bell from Albany. Uh, I'm here because January 6, three years ago, was a, a terrible uh, stain upon America, and the uh, the idea behind it was lies about who won the election, and it was clearly an attempt to take over the American government by force. So it's great to be here with people coming out in the cold to protest this and to stand up for democracy. Thank you. And you? I'm Nancy Goody of Albany, New York. I am here for the same reasons that Greg mentioned, 
the insurrection that happened on January 6th three years ago was a horrible thing to watch. It should never have happened in our democracy, and I'm glad democracy prevailed, and this is a way to commemorate that we have to keep and guard our democracy. Thank you so much. Thanks. I'm with a small local uh, news program that runs uh, through the Sanctuary for Independent Media. I got here at the end of your presentation. Could you tell me a little bit about your background and why you're here today? Sure, absolutely. So I am uh, Steve Holden. I am running against Elise Stefanik this cycle. And I am here today because as not just a candidate for Congress, but as a 20-year retired Army Lieutenant Colonel, the defense of democracy and the oath to the Constitution of the United States means something to me. And we need to have public officials who actually will live up to their oath to defend the Constitution of the United States. And we can't have people up there that are meddling about this or who are equivocating about it. We absolutely 100% need to have people like me and Congressman Tonko and my friend Josh Riley and NY19 and my other friends across the state who are running for Congress and for public office who are going to do that up and down the ballot. So we need to actually have people who are going to actually do what they're going to say and not just whatever's on a whim. And I will 100% always adhere to the constituents in my district and to the Constitution of the United States. And in your presentation, you mentioned working on the commission that removed the Confederate names from... Yes, I did. So I worked on the uh, U.S. Army's, uh, which is, is DOD-wide, but particularly the U.S. Army's renaming of Confederate installations and property to people who were not traitors to the United States. And one of those was now Fort Polk, Louisiana, is now Fort Johnson, Louisiana, which is now named after the only member of the New York National Guard to be ever awarded the Medal of Honor, Sergeant Henry Johnson. Yes, yes, and he was the only member of the New York National Guard to ever receive the Medal of Honor. Guess who voted against it? At least Stefanik did. She tried to, she along with Claudia Tenney and now defrocked George Santos tried to vote to end that commission. So if you were on the commission to change the Confederate names to, to non-Confederate names, I assume you have some idea what the Civil War was about. Oh, yes. Oh, very much it was. And it was about slavery. And it doesn't take being the governor of the state of South Carolina to figure that out. Well, thank you for your time, and thank you for being here. Thank you very much, and everybody get out there support independent media. It's, a true, it, it's true First Amendment stuff that you're doing out there. So I'm here with one of the organizers of Bethlehem Indivisible. Can you tell, introduce yourself and tell us what Bethlehem Indivisible is? Hello, my name is Gail Reklefsky, and Bethlehem New York Indivisible uh, is located in Del Mar, but you can be a member from anywhere. We have members in New York City. Uh, we are a group supporting democracy, progressive uh, leaders, uh, progressive legislation, and our goal is to make activism easy, fun, and effective. We do a lot of postcard and letter writing, um, but we also uh, text, uh, knock on doors, phone bank, show up at rallies like this. Um, there's any number of ways for people to become involved, and uh, we keep in touch through our email list. If you're interested, uh, please contact us at 
coordinatingteam518 at gmail.com. And Bethlehem Indivisible is part of a larger organization, is that correct? Yes, thank you for saying that. We are a chapter of uh, the National Indivisible Group that was started right after uh, Trump was elected. Um, and they provide us a lot of support and um, background and ideas on things that need to be done. And we'll be very active in the Get Out the Vote effort for this year. And I've participated in Get Out the Vote in the past. Maybe you can say a little bit about what's involved, if you need any special skills, how much it might cost. Well, most of it uh, doesn't, doesn't cost money. I mean, uh, they always need donations, but most of our work is, can be done remotely or in person. The remote things are uh, letter and postcard writing, and I just want to say don't get scared by the term letter writing. They are pre-printed letters that you just personalize with a couple of lines and address the envelope. We uh, bundle them and sometimes are able to provide stamps and envelopes, and it's a great program. Postcards are similar. Um, those things can be done from anywhere. Uh, knocking on doors is free. <laughs> May, joining a phone bank is, is free. We advertise all the ways to get involved with that. Um, you can choose what you're comfortable with and what's easy for where you live. Thank you again. And your name again? Gail Raklevsky. And for more information? You should email coordinatingteam518 at gmail.com. And is there a website for information? We have an FB page. If you Google us, Bethlehem, New York Indivisible, on a Facebook, you'll find us. Thanks a lot, Gail. Thank you. And I'm here with another participant in the rally on, on January 6th. Can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about why you're here? Hi, I'm Assemblywoman Pat Fahey, representing the 109th District here in Albany. And I'm here today because I think it is extraordinarily important that we never forget and that we remember the outrage of January 6th, where the beacon of our democracy throughout the world is our New York State Capitol, our U.S. United States Capitol. And to think that that was under threat I, I'm still not over how, how stunning that was. And it is important that uh, these election deniers and those who supported that insurrection uh, be held accountable, continue to be held accountable, and that we remember that day because that day should live in infamy just as 9-11 lives in infamy uh, in 2001 and just as Pearl Harbor lives in infamy. January 6th is right up there with that type of outrage. And to think that we are seeing these election deniers still try to threaten our democracy. So I spent many years in Washington, D.C. I was working here on January 6, 2021. Here being the New York Capitol. Here being the New York State Capitol. I'm so proud to represent it, and we have to remember this is our New York symbol of democracy. It is important to not only recognize those, respect those, we can debate and discuss and disagree all we want, 
but we cannot destroy. We cannot even threaten or destroy our democracy. So again, proud to stand with all. Now, you mentioned threatening, and I know that a number of state capitals have had threats, have had um, cars taken away with explosive. Has anything, to your knowledge, happened here in New York? Well, that day, January 6th on 2021, we had two people stabbed right outside. So obviously nothing compared to January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. And since then, as you know, 450 people have gone to jail. So there are consequences. People are being held accountable. But that's not enough. We cannot forget. We cannot forget. And yes, we see threats quite frequently. It's, it's been unsettling to see how much things have degenerated. And uh, unfortunately, I do fault Donald Trump. His own vice president, his own vice president at that time, had to be hidden because he was at risk of assassination. And that's Vice President Pence. So this type of extremism even threatened Republicans at that time. The Republican Congress members at that time had to go into hiding from this type of extremism. And I think too many on the Republican side even forget that part. This type of political violence is absolutely unacceptable. Disagree, debate, do not destroy. Democracy does matter, and I mean that with a small d for democracy. Thank you very much. Again, that was Pat Fahey, Assemblywoman here in New York State. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, an honor to have joined all today, including Congressman Tonko, Mayor Sheehan, and more. It is important that we never forget what uh, was attempted, that insurrection, to take over our U.S. Capitol three years ago. I appreciate each of those folks taking time to talk with me on Saturday, especially despite already standing out in the cold for a couple hours for the rally. We'll hear more about the weather when Hugh joins us. For those just tuning in, I'm Victor Max Valentine. And I'm Bria Barthel. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network, WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, W-O-O-G-L-P, 92.7 FM, Troy. W-O-O-S-L-P, 98.9 FM, Schenectady. And W-O-O-A-L-P, 106.9 FM, Albany. Plus, streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by joining our team or just by telling a friend. Sharing is caring. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Now we hope joining us once again is retired National Weather Service meteorologist Hugh Johnson for our weekly discussion of weather and climate. There will be a slight delay when we try to patch him in. And he's here now. Hey, welcome back, Hugh. And let me introduce hey, hey. you. Oh, your oh. turn. You go ahead. <laughs> let me introduce you to my co-host, Victor. How are you? Hi, Victor. You? Hi. Good. And this Happy good. New Year. I hope your holiday was nice. I heard that the year 2023 was not only the warmest year on record for the world, but here in Albany as well. Is that true? That is correct. We smashed the record. The old record was 51.6 in 2012, we beat that by six-tenths of a degree, uh, 52.2. Compare that to our normal 30-year average of 49.4. So we were 2.8 degrees 
above normal. And we had, what, four or five months that were in the top 10 warmest, including December, I believe our third mile was just a month. October was in the top 10. So it was September, I think, and February and January. It was just an amazing trilogy of, of months that, you know, combined together gave us the record. I know my bushes at home are getting a little confused with my forsythia in bloom already, but hopefully there won't be too much damage done by the heat. Well, yeah, but we, we got, uh, I mean, I'm telling you, I saw the grass, the grass was green down in Albany. I'd never seen the grass so green in early January. I'd never, because it was also very wet in December. So between the mild temperatures and the war, and the wetness, it's like being in London. Yeah, and speaking of green grass, I before we I asked you about weather in, in Buffalo for Christmas, and you said it wouldn't be as bad as last year. It was green grass even in Buffalo. Fifty-four. I think they shouted, I think they broke their record high. We didn't break our record high. We were in the low fifties. I think they had their warmest Christmas on record. I'm pretty sure they did. The International Climate Summit called COP28 met in Dubai in December. Yep. And you okay? Go. I'm sorry. What is your take, Hugh? Well, it, it was a nice conference. They put a lot of money into it. It was it was ironic. They put it in, in a place where one of the greatest oil capitals of the world, uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, Dubai, and all that. Uh, there, I, I think a lot of it was a lot of it was was hand wanding. But a couple of good things that came out of it was countries realized that we really, really have to ramp up green energy by 2030 if we're going to keep our temperature of the earth at 1.5 C. Folks, by the way, we almost hit that this year with being our warmest year on record. I believe it was 1.4 above normal. So we did have help from the El Nino, which added a couple tents, but we are really on that edge of that anyways. So that was one of the take-homes. Probably the best thing was that $726 million was, was designated to countries that are suffering from climate change that have nothing to do with it. It's not the ones that are contributing to all the CO2, but they're the ones that are hurting. A lot of African countries and, and South America countries. You realize that last year in the winter in South America, there were places running 20 degrees above normal day after day above their normal high, and people were dropping dead. Um, the, the money is needed. It, 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 it's a very small amount. They need a lot more than that, but at least it's a, a step in the right direction. So that's array of optimism. Uh, yeah, basically, it, it, you know, those are the two main to, uh, points. I, I really, really, my own gut feeling is it's too little, too late, but I hope I'm wrong. But, I mean, we really are running out of time. I mean, 2030 is only six years away, less than six years away. So good luck reducing the CO2 over 50% when it's still climbing last year, 7%. I think the next climate summit is also going to be in the Middle East, which makes me wonder exactly how much of a stand we may have against fossil fuels. Yet despite all this talk of warmth, we finally had an old-fashioned snowstorm over the weekend. So who got, who got the most, and how did the forecasting go? It seemed to be creeping up and up and up to expecting about a foot, and then ended up being a lot less. What's going on? Well, okay, Ray, I, I think they did a pretty good job. They went 8 to 12, 6 to 12. We got the lower end of that. Not that far south. The Middleton Valley got over a foot. So the storm actually, the surface storm, underperformed from here north because it went a little further south, and, and some of the models were picking up at that at the last minute. 
but it went a little south of what we call our benchmark where it would touch the Cape Cod Canal. It was about 50 miles south of that. That said, again, uh, Hudson Valley did very well, Mid-Hudson Valley. We got a lot of, of, of energy from the upper level part of the storm. It was not that strong, but it was still came through, and it, it was able to produce optimal snowflakes because of the lift was in the right part of the cloud and temperature and all that. So we got a pretty good dump in the app and the midday on Sunday, which the, the one model picked up on at the last minute because it was we were all thinking it would come overnight. And I woke up with only a couple inches of snow on the ground, but we got I got a good four inches from midday on. So we got those nice dendritic snowflakes, the, the, the optimal growth ones, and we piled it up pretty good. But it was a generic snowstorm, 7.4 my house. I think the airport 7.2, most places in the capital region around eight inches. So it was generic. It wasn't too wet. It didn't blow around too much. And it wasn't infested with sleet. So good old-fashioned snowstorm. I'll take it. What is the weather for the upcoming week? Any more <laughs> snowstorms in the pipeline? Yes and no. Um, well, yes, there, there's going to be a little snow tomorrow. There, we got a, we're, we're, we're basically jet stream, the Pacific jet streams on steroids right now. We're getting one storm after another coming in from the Pacific, the classic El Nino setup, races up the Gulf Coast and, and races up the coast. Although this one, unfortunately, is going to go to our west. So what this means, we're going to get a burst of snow in the afternoon. We might actually slick up the roads pretty good for a while, maybe an inch or two of snow, and then it should go over to quickly sleet and rain. And then we're going to have a, a one to two inches of rain, and we might actually have a flood because... We're going to have strong southerly winds and temperatures pumping up to near 50. You heard that right. Late tomorrow night into early Wednesday. So we're going to melt a lot of the snow. This is what climate change is. I mean, you know, this is crazy. We can finally get snow. We're going to lose a lot of it, maybe not all of it. So that's, that's one storm. And then there's another one coming for the weekend that might do the same thing. So watch out. Uh, unfortunately, that one, too, looks like a snow-to-rain scenario. So... Uh, we're not going to pile up the snow, but we could put piling up the water in the rivers. And, and unfortunately, this is going to be bad with basements because the ground's just starting to freeze now. So the water will have nowhere to go. So it could be really bad. Um, temperatures will come down behind the storm later on Wednesday and especially later in the week. And by next week, we might actually see temperatures at or slightly below normal staying that way a little longer. But until then, we've got these two storms to watch out for. Do you have any longer-term predictions? Like, is this, we're finally getting winter and it's going to stay winter now, or? We're going to try. We're, we're watching the, with the old polar vortex. There are some signals that it might weaken and, and bleed. And what will happen to weaken, it will bring some really Arctic air down somewhere, and we might get, you know, and that might be more like a late January, February thing. And if that southern stretch stream stays active, look out. We might finally get some good snowstorms. But, you know, again, that's kind of what I'm thinking for later in January, February. And, and by the way, that track could be suppressed south at that point. Maybe the Mid-Atlantic gets it and we don't. But I think that's what, we're, that's what I'm thinking is going to happen, cooler and still pretty active as we go into later January and into February. One of the things I love about talking with you, Hugh, is that I can ask any climate or weather question that comes up. And I've <laughs> learned from you the complexities of predicting weather, even uh, a week ahead, much less months ahead, what do you think of mm -hmm. books like the uh, Old Farmer's Almanac that, that get printed like a year and a half before the winter weather that they're forecasting? Yeah, I mean, I think they, they do have some reliability. I'm going to say that in quotes. Uh, they, they look at very long, like they look at the El Nino and some other stuff. But, you know, 
it's if you look at them carefully, they're pretty vague uh, and misleading. In other words, they'll have like you know five things happening in three days, and and, and you don't know what what end, end is up. So I, I wouldn't put much stock in them. I guess I would say, and usually they tend to go for the colder, snowier winter kind of thing. Uh, that's what I find anyway. So not a lot of stock. It's something you can look at, but I mean you, you can't really plant. I mean. Basically, winters around here are still going to have up to 59 inches of snow. They're still going to be cold. They are changing. They're not as cold as they used to be. But, you know, I, I went out and hiked in the Thatcher Park today because I know I'm gonna, we're going to lose this wonderful snow in the next day or two. So, you know, I try to take advantage of it. But we are living in a different time now. Things are not what they used to be. It's interesting. You head to the parks when you know we're going to lose the snow, and I head to the parks yeah. when maybe uh, the, the snow, to beat the snow. Well, thanks for joining us once again. Next Monday is yet another holiday, but we look forward yeah. to talking with you in two weeks. Thanks again, Hugh. Indeed. you got to have a great night, folks. Bye-bye. Okay, and now to our next segment. On Thursday, January 4th, the Albany Common Council passed a resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza by a 10-to-2 vote. Before the meeting, supporters rallied outside City Hall and then filled the meeting hall to demand an end to the killing in Gaza. And here it, we hear from some of the people um, who were at the meeting. Does that work? Okay. What's your name and address for the record? And My name is Karen Carmelli. I'm a resident of the 14th Ward in Albany. And I just want to acknowledge everyone that's in this room and everybody that's outside. I'm a Jewish homeowner in the 14th Ward. I'm an Israeli-American citizen who was raised in the state of Israel. I'm a member of Jewish Voice for Peace, and I'm here to speak in support of the ceasefire resolution and to thank council members Adams and Romero for really listening to and hearing the concerns of their constituents by introducing this resolution. I've spoken to the council twice over the past couple of months, and today I'd like you to hear from some Palestinians in Gaza. The first clip I'm going to play for you is, from a, is of a group of four children. They appear to range in age from one to seven. They are lying together on a blanket on the floor of a hospital, since all of the hospitals in Gaza are either destroyed or completely overwhelmed and are being treated for burns, lacerations, and fractures following an airstrike. <laughs> You don't need to speak Arabic to understand what's going on in these videos. As a mother, that scream, that pain radiates through my entire body, my bones, my soul. There is no justification for the carnage we are witnessing in Gaza. It's okay if you don't have the full context, the history, or speak the language. As humans, we recognize the pain in others and should do whatever we can to prevent that pain. Council members, you unanimously approved the resolution on October 16th condemning Hamas's actions on October 7th and affirmed, quote, unequivocal solidarity with the state of Israel. We are asking you to show solidarity and recognize the pain this genocide is causing the Palestinian, Arab, Muslim communities in Albany and all peace-loving, justice-seeking people in this city. There is nothing anti-Semitic about calling for an end to genocide. Please support this resolution. Honorable members of the Albany City Council, my name is Miles Melnikoff, former captain of the United States Army. I served as an infantry commander in Afghanistan in 2012, a role that exposed me to the harrowing realities of war, particularly its impact on innocent civilians. Additionally, beyond my experience in the military, while I am relatively new to Albany, I am now ingrained in the community. My daughter goes to Temple of Israel, and it was quite a surprise as you could imagine when I saw not just her school, but her classroom on the front page of the New York Times after uh, the, the recent shooting. So I have a vested interest both in 
military conflict and uh, the, the community here. Today, I am speaking not just in support of a resolution for ceasefire, but I believe we should not limit it to a single conflict. But rather, if we're going to call for peace, we should call for peace for all conflicts in the world. As we look at ourselves as a community, I don't understand why we're trying to single out a specific um, conflict, but if we want to come together as a community and call for peace, I feel we should do that uniformly. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Ikaz Kareshi. I'm from Clifton Park. So before we came here, we are um, get the Pledge of Allegiance, and we said, for liberty and justice for all, but are we really fighting for justice in this country if we're funding a genocide happening right now? So why are we doing the Pledge of Allegiance if we do not believe for justice? All of us are here today because we all care about the ongoing genocide that is going on in Palestine. We hope all of you take a stand tonight on a permanent ceasefire that includes for humanitarian aid to Gaza and to release all the hostages and political prisoners. There must be an immediate ceasefire now due to the mass murdering of civilians and the displacement of two million Palestinians. We need one now because how many more Palestinians have to die? They're human beings. It is not anti-Semitic to call for a ceasefire. Why is it that Palestinians are not seen as humans? This is not a religion issue, this is a human right issue. Palestinians are being denied food, water, and electricity. If this is not ethnic cleansing, then what is? Thank you so much, that's your time. fire now, thank you for having me. Good evening, my name is Harun Sarwar. I have four children, I'm joined here by today, two of them. One is Khalid over there, whose birthday it is today. I would hope that you can make him happy by supporting the resolution. He has been attending the meetings with me for the past few months now. I also represent the voice of thousands of Muslims living in Albany. I I'm the president of Masjid al-Salam, which is on 276 Central Avenue. We have over a thousand families which are in our congregation. I also represent the voice of hundreds and hundreds of tax-paying businesses located in Albany and along with the other mosques in the capital district. Our kids, I, I don't even have the words now, our kids are getting hopeless, helpless, they're feeling helpless, they're coming to us in mass numbers and they're trying to ask us on every day, single daily basis what is that they, they can do. We have taken them for two numerous protests, some of them which were held right by the capital across the street from here. We have done donation drives to collect money for when and if possible a ceasefire may happen and that people will get the humanitarian assistance which is not happening. Please, if you look at the dictionary of what is a ceasefire, a ceasefire, according to Webster, is suspension of fighting, typically one during which peace talks take place, a truce. What is wrong with a ceasefire is what our kids do not understand. After this meeting, they may not understood much what had happened today, but as soon as I go home, the other two, which are six and seven-year-old, they will ask me, what happened today and where did you go again? And I will explain to them, we were in the city of Albany, and this is what we, although this is a symbolic gesture, it means a lot to them. 
we have hundreds of kids. Some of them are being harassed. Some of them are in school facing tremendous amounts of pressure. They just don't know what to do. If you give them some chances or a slight hope by just approving this resolution, at least they feel all the work that they have done over the past few months mattered, that their voices just dot, went and wane. Thank you so much. Please, please do consider this seriously. Stand on the right side of the history. Few years from now, when you will be moving on to others and others that will be coming in, they will, will applaud you for the work that you have done. Please stand on the right side. Thank you. Good evening, Council President and members. My name is Safa Manry, and I reside in Latham, New York. I'm here to talk to you about the proposed resolution on the ceasefire in occupied Palestine. I'm not going to be discussing morality, loss, because that would be appealing to your collective moral compass. Feelings are far too messy and far too complicated and have no real place here. So let's check numbers. According to the BBC, the US government gifted Israel $3.8 billion in 2020 for an overall package of $38 billion in military aid over the course of 10 years, a package that increased its price by 6% since its previous decade. Because while you may have to wait for your government to adjust your wage due to inflation, Israel doesn't. Like Israel, America prides itself in being a democracy, yet the people are not getting a say on how the people's money is being spent. Who is the America's allegiance to? The American people or to the Israeli settler halfway across the globe? Because according to US policy, it is to neither. America's allegiance is to arms dealers, companies, military contractors, and the, to the politicians who wait to line their pockets with the stock profits from BP's recent acquisition of gas and oil. Simply put, America's focus is on advancing the military industrial complex, not on the American person. My name is Ibrahim Safir. I'm a recent graduate at the University of Albany. Um, the last couple of weeks, I watched as my coworkers, friends and family alike, all prepared for the Christmas celebration. Uh, as you all know, uh, around here you all saw there was love, family, and joy in the air. Um, but that feeling was quickly overshadowed by the news from the Bethlehem Church. Not the one over here, the one in Palestine. That all the Christmas celebrations had been canceled, or would be canceled for this year. Reason being that there is nothing to celebrate. Uh, if you are Palestinian, and that the time should, it would be better used to spread awareness. There is no joy as family and loved ones are lost. People of the world have heard the cries of Gaza, as you see us outside and you see us behind. All of us from different countries, backgrounds, religions, colors, and creeds, we have all banded together to condemn and call for a permanent ceasefire. This is not a complicated issue if we act on morals, our values, if we believe in life, liberty, rights, and dignity for all, then there is no complications. It's only complicity that hinders the call for ceasefire. As I said before, the people of consciousness has spoken. We will continue to speak out and to call for justice in Palestine as their call is one for equality and justice. And so we'll continue to call for free Palestine until Palestine Thank is you. free. Thank, Thank you, you Commons. Thank you. For Moses Nagel's previous coverage with excerpts from the Albany Common Council's discussion, visit our website, mediasanctuary.org. And we end today's program with a segment from our archives by former intern Sarah Abraham. She interviewed folks with the organization Young Futures about their programs and how it allows children to explore their creative passions while assisting them in developing different life and educational coping skills. 
Hello and welcome. Today we'll be speaking with the CEO and president of Young Futures, James Mitchell. Welcome, James. And I just want you to be able to introduce yourself and what you'll be talking about today and the work that you do and how you got into it. First, I want to say thank you, Sarah. Thank you, um, you know, to the sanctuary. I always tell people that I am a servant, right? So by default, I'm always looking, pay, looking for ways to support people, help people, um, and really just kind of fill that void of you know, needing to make everyone else around me a little bit better than they were when they weren't around me. Um, and I do that. I was fortunate enough to find my, my passion in, in my organization, Young Futures, uh, where we focus on art and education. It really created a therapeutic environment, not only for the children, but for the families that um, interact with our organization and our art activities. Currently, we're running a financial literacy course where children are, are taught the, um, the importance of banking and budgeting. We also talk about what are assets and liabilities. We go into equity and we also teach credit and interest. Uh, we have a few more topics that we're going to include in the future. But as of right now, we teach those four classes. Um, but what's cool about them is because we connect the art activity to each topic and the children are able to walk away, not only with a tangible piece of art, but in that art, we talked about how the assets and liability connects to this pair of sneakers that they walk out with, that they created themselves, um, or how equity was built in this can-do um, that they made in class when they walked in, it was just a glass jar and some wax on the table. So, um, so it was a really fun way to teach um, and really, as I said, continue to serve the community I, I love, care for, and, and, and live in. That's pretty dope, especially because you said you had a servant mindset since the beginning and you always want to support and help others. So for you to just have this calling, do you know what made you specifically want to choose this age range for 8 to 13-year-olds? Did you specifically feel like this group needed it the most? Like, what was your thought process behind it? That's, that's a little jaded, right? I mean, not jaded, but that's uh, not accurate, right? Because what I say is we 8 to 13 is the age group that we focus on, but we also don't send a child home, right? So if a child comes with their sibling that's five years old, we have taught, you know, five-year-olds what equity is. Even now, we have students in our current class as young as seven and eight, or, I mean, seven, seven years old. So we, we try not to limit ourselves, but we do find that at the age of seven, eight years old, you can retain the information, you can process the information a little bit better, you know, you, you can remember, um, internalize the information, and then, you know, give your own examples. And then we also feel at the age of 13, 14 is kind of when you know, my silly and goofiness is no longer enjoyed, you know, and, and though we, we are planning on tearing out the lessons so we can accommodate to older students, I can't teach a seven-year-old and a 15-year-old at the same time and then both receive it in the same way that is, at, you know, most necessary for them. That makes sense, especially because of the age difference. But you still said that you want them to retain the information regardless of the age and no child is left behind. So since those values are carried out throughout this organization, you also previously mentioned that you you had other classes in the works, even though you said budgeting and equity. Do you think that you could go into more classes that you would want to get into and how they would also be therapeutic for these kids? Because you only mentioned like five, which is also really cool, but you said you had more in the works. Young Futures was, was established in 2012, and we started focusing on, on art in 2015, you know, and having different art activities for the families and the children. We didn't start with the financial literacy until 2021, right? So 
now that we've started facilitating these courses and teaching the children these lessons, once they're done, we don't want them to feel, we still want to make sure we still have other art activities for them to um, be involved with. So, so we, we make, we have different activities where they come back in and we have a class where they paint how they feel based upon the music that is played. So we, we have a class where we We'll play music. I'll, I'll play a 40, uh, 40 to 90 seconds of a song and ask the child to paint what they feel, right? And some of these songs will be um, classical music. I have a song called, like, it's literally five words. It's by the Beatles called She's So Heavy. And that's kind of just repeated over and over and over. Um, we have Spanish songs who, you know, just have, no, we try to stay away from lyrics in the song and just kind of have it be music that is more instrumental. So like, again, we can get a gauge on their feelings. Um, we have a list of different art, uh, different, um, shapes that correlates to our feelings and ask them to kind of duplicate that so we can see what they're thinking. What did the song, what feelings did the song emote? Um, we also do yoga classes as well, really just kind of helping them focus on their mindfulness. Um, I truly feel like yoga, especially in the African-American community culture, is a practice that is not always seen as something that can take you away from your stresses, but also heighten your level of confidence in yourself. Um, just because it's, it's, all, it's, it's mostly seen in the, in the Western culture more as something that you need time to do or you need access to a gym to do. Um, but also, it's it's also a, a high level of a, a masculinity that sometimes being connected with your body is not encouraged. And, you know, I feel like being a big burly guy like I am, you know, I kind of bring down those walls um, and help people feel a little bit more comfortable by doing some of these activities. That's cool, especially because vulnerability is so important. So do you think since you mentioned like uh, yoga helps relieve like stress and being connected with your body and things like that. And it's not just yoga that you guys do the financial and the budgeting, the painting, everything you mentioned, um, all of these create like an aspect of vulnerability. So do these kids like usually open up quickly about like the things that they go through or it takes a while to build up this comfortability between them. And then they open up about their mental health. They're like, how does the connection work between you guys? Oh, wow. Have you worked with this age group? <laughs> they seem like they're a lot of fun that's for sure yeah so they it, it takes a while right they it, and, and you got to understand that it, until they see consistency in you right they have no they have no faith that if they do open up to you right away that you will be willing to support them right but then follow through right it's one thing to actually help them and, and give them some information is another thing to follow through on what you said you're going to do and making sure that they know that you can be a resource. Um, so for, for me and our program, it, it takes some time, right? Um, but one of the things that we're so fortunate and we're so blessed about is that we've been here. Um, as I said, we started doing children programming in 2015. Um, I now have an 11 and a 10 year old that's been with us over the past four years, right? Coming to different programs. So now these children are open right away and when other children in the classroom see that, it, it allows them to feel more comfortable, you know, giving, you know, being more vulnerable with me or being more open about the things that they may be experiencing or just how, you know, how life is responding to them in, in a lot of cases. 
And life can be really difficult no matter what the age group is, right? So, um, exactly. so do you think in our last two minutes, you can be able to just tell us how listeners can help young minds outside of the capital district, um, outside of young futures? Because I know you guys just uh, pour your heart and soul into these kids of wanting to just help them and meet their psychological needs. So if you were able to just um, leave us with any last thoughts of wanting us to do better as a society to meet these, the mental health of these young kids. Well, I think uh, awareness is the biggest piece, right? Awareness and acceptance, right? Um, I feel a lot of times parents, adults feel like children are ours to command and our rules are theirs to follow when really we are just guide, guides for them or we have to more help curate where they're going, right? And it's a matter of them determining what it is that they want. Um, and we're just there to support them, educate them when they're, you know, when something that they want is not in line with what they need or in line with really what their true desires are. Um, and also just being constantly being um, consistent, right? Um, as, as, an, as a parent myself and as an adult, I feel like those are the biggest pieces that allow children to feel comfortable with me and our programs. Um, so I definitely encourage other people to do that. Um, we ourselves at Young Futures have resources. Um, we have, you know, tutelage classes that we're willing to do and work with other individuals. Um, so if by all, by all means, if in, anyone would like more information, um, I would say reach out to us on our social media at Young Futures Inc. Inc. Um, and we'll definitely be able to support them by not only guiding them, giving them tips, but also showing them, you know, results from where we started to where we are now. Thank you so much, James, for the practical tips and um, being able to invest in these kids and wanting to help when you can. And um, I hope that listeners can be able to take something from this. And thanks again for your time. Awesome, Sarah. No, thank you for reaching out and uh, seeing what we're doing. Um, and I also encourage you to follow us on all social medias as well. Of course. Thank you. <laughs> That story was by our former intern, Sarah Abraham. Hudson Mohawk Magazine is now welcoming in a new batch of interns. This is a great way to create a portfolio around a topic that interests you. If you or someone you know wants to explore becoming an intern, please let us know. Just email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Bria Barthel, and our engineer is the ever-incredible Kaylin McPherson. And this is Victor Max Valentine. Thank you for welcoming me in, Bria. And we want to thank all of the volunteers who made this episode possible. Other contributors to today's episode are Mark Dunley for headlines and segment production, plus Moses Nagel, Sarah Abraham, and your co-host, Victor Valentine, and me, Bria Barthel. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. We want to hear from you. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or 
Stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. And thanks to you, our listeners, for making this all worthwhile.